Our second lesson is from the Gospel of Matthew. I previewed it earlier. It's always the Gospel passage associated with Epiphany Sunday. It's printed here in your liturgy right after that lovely song that we just sang. I'm going to read it now if you read along with me. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem asking, where's the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star in the east and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened and all Jerusalem with him. Calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the Magi and learned from them the exact I'm sorry. Then Herod secretly called for the Magi and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word, so that I may also go and pay him homage. When they had heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star that they had seen in the east until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and they paid him homage. Then opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. This is the word of the Lord, gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. God's people said, thanks be to God. Let us pray. Open our ears, O Lord, that we would hear the gospel. May your Holy Spirit be our teacher this morning and always. Um, May you enable us to, to hear something, to have something impressed upon our heart today that will enable us to leave this morning um, with a lift in our step as we uh, respond uh, to the gospel in unique and particular ways. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, as we mentioned earlier, since about the 4th century, the church has marked the 12th day after Christmas as the Feast of the Epiphany, noting that the visit of the mysterious wise men from the East, the Magi, as Matthew has it here, that that visit to Jesus symbolizes something, something important and worth pausing over and pondering. It calls out something that 
should be noted in association with Jesus' birth. And that something is this, that Jesus was born not just to amplify God's message of love to one people group, in this case Israel, but that Jesus had come for the whole entire world. Lee, our uh, seminarian in residence, reminded us of this last Sunday in her terrific homily from the Gospel of Luke on Anna and Simeon. When she linked together the, the looking back and looking forward of Simeon, looking back at the Old Testament promises that through Abraham and through David, that all the nations of the world would be blessed. And looking forward to what the Old Testament prophets had looked forward to themselves, that the Messiah would be a light not just for Israel, but a light to the Gentiles. So over in Luke, um, that's how that theme comes out. And we were reminded of that. If you haven't heard Lee's homily, I'd recommend that you look it up online. It was really good last week. Always good. Um, this theme of universal scope, uh, that's what the power of the gospel brought about, isn't it, in the early church? Um, they brought, it, brought about among Jesus' Jewish followers, much to their surprise. Uh, it was much to their surprise that um, what the Holy Spirit was doing in the growth of the early church uh, was to bring about a new humanity. Jews, Gentiles, and in the various instances of the biblical language of the New Testament, uh, these people groups are called out as belonging to a new humanity. Barbarians, Scythians, male and female, slave and free, all are one in Christ Jesus, and all meant all, and all means all. Those categories of people that I just mentioned being at one with each other in the first century church, sharing the communion table, serving each other in Christian community, that that was what the gospel is all about, that would have been a shock, and it was a shock, to those who only had eyes to see a world divided by hatred, suspicion, exploitation, and the like. But the Holy Spirit in the New Testament church was bringing about a new humanity that could not come about other than through the power of the gospel, through the power of Christ's empowering presence. Now we hear those categories that I just read, slave and free and Jew and Gentile and barbarian and Scythian and the like. Um, and they, they're, they're really just words on a page. And they kind of feel like words on a page. Uh, things that are nice to hear. But the first century church is so far away from us. Which I do think makes it important to add to this list. Particularly at the beginning of 2024. To add to the list. We could add a lot of names to the list. A lot of categories of people. But... You know, here's what was on my heart. Ukrainians, 
Russians. Palestinians, Israel's. Black people, brown people. Migrants living in tents in Chicago. All people who are divided are meant to be together in Christ. And then there is, of course, just the normal stuff, too. Like we at Grace Chicago are meant to be one with each other, to love and bless each other and our families, be a reconciling presence among our friends and our neighborhoods and workplaces and so on. We should not shy away from naming all of this, especially on Epiphany Sunday. Because if the church of Jesus Christ does not remember and bear witness to the fact that God wants and is at work in the world to bring about oneness and peace with justice on a universal and all-inclusive scale, if the church of Jesus Christ, especially on Epiphany, does not remind the world of this, who will? Who will? I also want to point out that in Matthew's Gospel, the Magi are not just the first mention of the radical inclusivity of God's work in the birth of Christ. Their presence follows naturally from Matthew's genealogy of Jesus. From the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, even before we have this famous representation of the Gentiles coming to Jesus. We have Jesus coming from the Gentiles. If you look at Matthew's genealogy, it really is quite remarkable. Four, count them four of the human beings in Matthew's genealogy are women. That should not happen. Uh, Jewish genealogies in the first century were not supposed to include the names of women. Matthew's does. And what are the four women like that are included that Matthew calls out under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to remind us of who is in Jesus' ancestry? Not just four women. Four Gentile women are named in the genealogy as carrying the lineage of Jesus And two of these women, Tamar and Rahab, are the ultimate outsiders to Israel, the ultimate threat, the ultimate enemy. They are Canaanites. You may recall the excellent sermon that um, Laura Wynn, one of our folks who's in our preaching mix, a seminarian at uh, Western Theological Seminary who lives in Milwaukee and who's been a part of Grace on and off for years, Um, You may remember the excellent sermon that she gave last year about, (coughs) excuse me, the Canaanite woman, which is a story that comes in the 15th chapter of Matthew, where we meet this woman that's begging Jesus to heal her child. 
From that story, you may remember all the back and forth between Jesus and the woman. Now, at first he says, I didn't come to, to deal with the Gentiles. <laughs> I mean, it is an awkward interaction, right? Uh, and this, this Canaanite woman persists. She persists and she persists and she persists. Dramatic story. It would be really something for good drama people to, to put on a, a little miniature play, if you will, because it's such a dramatic encounter. And mysteriously, the Holy Spirit makes this woman the star of the story. Somehow this woman, uh, in her conversation, is the instrument for how Jesus changes his mind, heals her child. Amazing. Amazing. Um, but when we start back in Matthew's genealogy, 15 chapters earlier, could Jesus have made a different decision? With Tamar and Rahab being mothers to him. No, he wouldn't have. Given not only Jesus' compassionate heart, but the fact that these women, where he comes from, how would Jesus have made a different decision than to heal the woman's child? Epiphany invites us to take note of Matthew's careful way of using the very beginning of his gospel, a very boring, on first glance, genealogy, um, and an incredibly bizarre visit from wise men from the East. Um, Matthew uses the very beginning of his gospel to set the stage for great things to come. It's as if the beginning of his gospel is a movie trailer. And he's saying, hey, watch for these themes. This is what Jesus will be all about. So the theme of universal scope of God's love for humankind, well, it's on display twice here. First with the genealogy, and then, of course, coming now to the Magi. And with the Magi, we have another theme to introduce us to, and it's this that God's kingdom is a threat to those who hold power without love. God's kingdom is a threat to those who hold power without love, to those who hold power with injustice. God's kingdom in Jesus is a challenge to every way that human beings sinfully hold power. And the Magi bring that out in their encounter with Herod Herod's encounter with them, and what we see coming after that. So let's visit with the Magi a little bit now. Magi is that word that, <coughs> is, that Matthew applies to these strange... Uh, you know, I, I don't know why I think this, but maybe it's because of the T.S. Eliot poem, The Journey of the Magi, uh, which is not going to shed any more light on why I would think this, come to think of it. But um, by the way, if you don't get Grace's emails or don't read them carefully, you missed a treat because this Thursday um, in the weekly email, we sent 
a reading of that poem that we did during COVID when we couldn't meet together. Uh, Three of our elders, uh, John and uh, Matt and Michael, read The Journey on the Magi. They'd done it before, but they did it in recording. And Artie, our director of music, set it to some uh, really delightfully intriguing mysterious music, but maybe it's because of that poem that I think, man, it would have been an awesome trip to go with the Magi. I mean, I think when they rolled, you know, they really knew what they were doing. They knew how to travel. I picture camels, I picture tents, I picture, you know, dinner parties under these huge tents and whatnot, or maybe it was a miserable trip. I don't know, but the image is just so intriguing, right? These mysterious wise men from the East, Magi comes from the Greek word magos, which basically means magic, right? And so God uses their ways of discerning what's going, in the wor- going on in the world. The, God uses their practice of reading the stars to understand the world's events around them. He uses all of that, God does, to reveal the birth of Jesus, King of the Jews. Now, there are numerous theories around what astronomical configurations they saw. We don't know for sure, but... Whatever they saw, they recognized in it that a significant baby was being born to be king of the Jews and somehow also king and ruler like no other of the whole world. Somehow God puts on their heart that it is their job that they go and celebrate his birth by paying him tribute. I also realized this morning that I have forever confused myself about how to pronounce the word H-O-M-A-G-E. I have absolutely, you know, it is like Jimmy Carter and nuclear, okay? I don't know if you remember, Jimmy Carter could not pronounce the word nuclear to save his life correctly uh, if he tried. I I apparently am utterly confused about how to pronounce that word, so I'm going to say tribute right now. Um, they, They realize they need to go pay Jesus tribute. It would have been a costly trip and probably risky. They seemed to be wealthy, and travel like that was no simple thing. But regardless of the wealth, what an endeavor. What an endeavor, and all for the purpose of paying tribute to a baby that was being born. Whatever is being revealed to them about the nature and character of this baby born to be king, wow, it sure is inspiring. I mean, don't you think they have something better to do? And you know what? I don't often do this, but let me just stop for a minute and and make a very mundane observation that they were inspired to go and pay tribute to Jesus. You know, I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't often immediately... Now, I feel inspired by the time I get here, okay? Let's not be confused about that. But when I wake up on Sunday mornings, I don't immediately feel inspired to go to church, and I doubt you do either, but... It's worth remembering that the one that we come to meet on Sunday mornings is inspiring like no other human being can be. Jesus is inspiring and worthy of our tribute and worthy of our excitement and our enthusiasm. So they are inspired. They want to go see Jesus. They want to pay him tribute. So they set off to look for him. And they know so far that a baby is going to be born that's going to be king of the Jews and somehow king of the whole world. Where would they look for such a baby? 
Jerusalem, of course. Within the halls of power, that's where you look, right? You look, you look where the royalty is, right? You go to Jerusalem. So that's where they go. A reasonable thought, for sure. That's where Jesus should have been by the way the world's thinking. And Jesus is, of course, not there. Not there. No, Jesus is in a backwater town with ordinary common folks born in a peasant family. Now, remarkably, in Herod's court, there are scholars of Torah and prophets that can tell them that, in fact, the prophets had said the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem and not Jerusalem. So they go off in the correct direction, but not before Matthew has set the stage for this other prominent theme in his gospel, namely that Jesus' kingdom will not be welcomed by those in power, but that there will be a clash. Perhaps the most shorthand way to summarize the clash between Jesus' authority as king and anyone who isn't Jesus, frankly, is to point out that Jesus is the only one who holds authority and power for the sake of the well-being of all people. Jesus is the only human being who holds authority and power for the sake and well-being of all people. Others will surely say they do. But they don't. This, of course, comes into very sharp focus when Jesus puts at the heart of his kingdom's moral code that one's enemy is to be loved. Not killed. <laughs> loved because to do so is a participation in God's love. Politically, this comes onto the stage quite dramatically when Pontius Pilate asks Jesus if he is the king of the Jews, and Jesus replies thus, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Because Epiphany is not on a Sunday, we sometimes don't celebrate it at worship. Technically, in the liturgical calendar, today is the baptism of our Lord's Sunday, which we are moving to next week. Um, but this year in particular, at least for my part, I felt strongly that we needed Epiphany in worship as God's people, as Grace Chicago Church. Jesus' answer to Pilate should shape our approach to worldly power, and we need to be reminded that this is our vocation as Jesus' followers, to hold those in authority to account, to pray for them and to remind them that God will judge their use of power and authority. And as free people who are following Jesus with relative great privilege in Chicago, in these United States, what else will we do with our privilege? Epiphany reminds us to use our privilege to speak out for those without voices, to go to the places where people are suffering. Jesus was found by the Magi in Bethlehem, but then quickly becomes a migrant as his parents flee to save his life from Herod's ter uh, 
terrifying edict. We must be shaped by this aspect of who Jesus is, at the heart of who he is. This is part of what it means for him to be king, to be found among those to whom power and violence would do their worst, found among them and serving them. Now, deciding just how to respond to this moment in history, particularly with Israel and Gaza, well, it can look very different from from person to person. I read a really moving article in the New York Times recently about a man named Chris George, who had worked for Save, for the, Save the Children in Gaza, had worked for peace for years, and years and years ago, decades, a couple of decades ago, he was kidnapped in Gaza. He now leads um, a refugee organization in Connecticut. And, and the article was, um, was so moving because um, demonstrated that in an organization like, like the refugee organization that he runs where, where lots of people from Palestine are employees, where people who are Jews are employees, just demonstrated how difficult it is to, to speak with one voice about policy issues. Um, but if you read the article, you'll see that they did come to a conclusion about how it is that they would use their voice and their leverage to speak a narrative that really is in alignment with the narrative that we have as those who follow Jesus, a narrative um, to work for peace and justice and, and seek the good of the vulnerable. Um, I just mentioned that as an illustration of very difficult, right? Lots of different people, lots of different thoughts. Um, diversity of views among people of goodwill, people who are aligned with Jesus' work in the world. But, but the one thing that we can't do, and that's what I want to say on Epiphany Sunday, and I, I suppose that at the end of the day, as I got to the end of this homily, I, this is when I really realized why it is I wanted to preach on Epiphany this year in particular. The one thing that we can't do is to allow the narrative that is dominant in the world to go unchallenged. The narrative that is dominant in the world is terror begets terror. That's not the narrative of the one to whom the Magi paid tribute. It's not Jesus' narrative. Let's find ways to honor Jesus' narrative and how we engage our world, a world that is writhing in despair and anguish. May God give us the wisdom to do just that. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.